So John 16, 25 through 33. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. These are the words of Christ. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father Himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figures, figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let us go now to Exodus 5, 1 and read through 6, 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey His voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest He fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens." And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose upon them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle." Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as, is, as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. 
But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. You know, I think it is really this passage that I have just read uh, that helps us to realize how important the previous one was, which we considered on the last Lord's Day. Why did God react as He did to the uncircumcision of Moses' firstborn son? Do you remember that story? I barely touched on it last Sunday because my focus was set elsewhere. But it's an important part of the text. Moses, we learned, had failed to circumcise his firstborn son who was born to him in Midian. We are to remember that circumcision was the sign attached to the Abrahamic covenant. It signified the covenant that God had made with Abraham. The promises of the covenant and also the threats were symbolized by circumcision. In brief, circumcision signified that the descendants of Abraham had been set apart by God as holy from the other people of the earth. And it also functioned as a reminder that the Hebrews were obligated to keep the terms of the covenant that God transacted with them lest they be cut off. And so it was a big deal, in a bad way, that Moses had failed to circumcise his son. Moses was a descendant of Abraham. He was a part of the covenant that God transacted with Abraham, therefore. His son, Gershom, was his name. He should have been circumcised as, a, as an infant. And the fact that he was not may indicate a lapse in faith in Moses while he was in Midian. And so in 424 we find this perplexing little story at a lodging place on the way towards Egypt, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. That is how the ESV renders that passage. I've said that this story is perplexing. And I think you would agree with me. You're reading along in the narrative of Exodus. And then you just come along to this story. And I think a lot of people think that's... That was strange. You know, what was, what was that all about? Why is this included in, in the narrative? It almost seems to us to be out of place. And I think it is perplexing 
to us for two main reasons. One, it is perplexing if we read the Scriptures too narrowly and forget what was said way back in Genesis 17 regarding circumcision and its connection with the covenant that God transacted with Abraham. Yes, we're studying the book of Exodus right now, but we are to remember that the book of Exodus is book two out of five that Moses wrote. It's a part of the Pentateuch. We're to read these five as, as a unit, therefore. We cannot forget Genesis. We cannot forget the covenant of circumcision that was instituted in Genesis 17. I've already reminded you of, of the significance of this, this sign, so I don't need to say much more. But here I'm simply saying it is no wonder this little story seems so strange to those who read it, being unaware of the significance of circumcision. Circumcision was for the Hebrews a physical reminder of all that God had promised to Abraham. It was a reminder of that Abraham's descendants had been set apart as holy from the nations. And if we forget that, then we will think it strange that God would react so strongly to Gershom's uncircumcision. We, we will think, really, what's the big deal here? Why is God reacting in such a strong way against this uh, negligence of, of, of Moses? Well, for us, circumcision is a matter of indifference. It's a matter of preference. But not for the Hebrews living under the Old Covenant. To fail to circumcise the male children of Israel who descended from Abraham was to disregard and break the covenant that God had made with them. You see. And so this little story, it's here for a really important reason. And we'll come to it in just a moment. Two uh, this little passage is perplexing in part because of our English translations. I'm going to admit to you that my Hebrew is quite weak. I'm not claiming to be an expert uh, in the Hebrew language by any means. But some of the commentaries I read do point out that our modern English translations take some interpretational liberties here in this passage. And, and again, I am not an expert in, in the Hebrew language, and I will acknowledge that translation work is very hard work, brothers and sisters. One word can often mean many things, and, and communicating the meaning of one language in another can be challenging, as I'm sure you could imagine. And so, I don't mean to sound critical, but here is what I think the text means. At a lodging place on the way, that is, they're going towards Egypt, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. The him here is not Moses, but Gershom, his son. The Lord sought to put Gershom to death, to, to death because he, though he was a descendant of Abraham, was not circumcised. So he had broken the covenant. The sin was, was Moses's at first when he failed to circumcise him, but it was Gershom's too as he was here grown. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. In fact, Moses' name does not appear in the Hebrew. The word is his. Again, I believe that his refers to Gershom. So Zipporah, the mother, touched Gershom's feet with it. And then Zipporah said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. The word translated as bridegroom could also mean relative of blood. You are a relative of blood to me. And here is what I think is going on in this strange little passage. Strong emphasis is being placed on the covenant that God made with Abraham. Circumcision was a sign of that. God had promised to bless Abraham's descendants, to redeem them from slavery, to give them their own land, to make them a kingdom, to bless all of the nations of the earth through them. And circumcision was a physical reminder of, of all of that. And it was a big deal. And Moses 
had failed to keep the covenant. His wife, on the other hand, so here we go again with uh, the narrative uh, bringing attention to great women of faith. It's happening over and over again in Genesis and here in Exodus too. Moses evidently had a lapse of faith, but his wife, though she was a Midianite by birth, she understood, believed, and was faithful concerning the promises of God. By circumcising her son and by saying to him, Surely you are a relative, a blood relative to me. She's acknowledging the covenant that was transacted with Abraham and that she by marriage and her son by birth was a part of this covenant. Do you see what's going on here now? I hope this is becoming clear to you. She was saying, I believe in these promises that were given first to Abraham, then Isaac, Jacob, and now they are mine because I'm married to this man, Moses, and we've had this child, Gershom. He's a part of this too. We're all in. We're all in. And it's significant that this all happened as this family is heading down towards Egypt to be used by the Lord, Moses in particular, to accomplish this great act of Deliverance, this great act of, re- of redemption, you know. Uh, think of how terrifying this must have been. And think of how terrifying it must have been, not just for Moses and Aaron too, we'll talk about him, but also for Moses' wife and, and for their entire family. They were all caught up in this uh, to one degree. So though this story seems strange to us at first, it's actually a marvelous little story, a, a very important one here The covenant that God made with Abraham is being highlighted. As I have said, this happened on the way to Egypt. So here is a fresh reminder of God's covenant with Abraham. Here is a fresh reminder of all the promises that God had made. Here is a fresh reminder of all that God would require of these Hebrews. They would be obligated to keep the covenant that God had made with them. They would be called to trust and obey. And this would all be deadly serious. Do you see that in this little story too? God came and sought to put this man Gershom to death because he had not kept the covenant. So all of that is just kind of put before us and and brought to our attention as as Moses journeys towards Egypt to begin this work of redemption. The other thing from this previous passage that I wish to remind you of is the little remark that God made regarding Pharaoh's reaction to the miracles that Moses was to perform and to the request to let the people of Israel go, the Lord told Moses ahead of time, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. This was the emphasis of last Sunday's sermon, and so I will not belabor this point, but the Lord told Moses ahead of time, He warned him saying, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. There's going to be a process. There's going to be a battle. It's going to be difficult. But what was God saying? Two things may be gleaned from this little statement. One, the Lord is sovereign over all things. Yes, even the hearts of men. And yes, even the hearts of great and powerful men. Men like Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So, Moses and the Hebrews were to take encouragement from this. They were to be confident. Two, we learn that though God is ultimately in control of all things, it will not always seem like it to us. And here is the point of the entire sermon for today. It will not always seem like it to us. Though He is sovereign over all things, it will not always seem to be the case. 
To say it a little differently, if we view the Exodus event, the entire process of it, from God's perspective, we can see that He was in control of everything, ultimately. We could understand what He was doing as He hardened Pharaoh's heart and allowed Pharaoh to harden his own heart, leading him to stubbornly refuse to let the people go for for a time. God was bringing glory to Himself as He put His marvelous mercy on display, as well as His just judgments. This we know as we consider the story from God's perspective as it is revealed to us in Holy Scripture and with eyes of faith. But viewed from the perspective of Moses, Aaron, and the Hebrews, on the ground and in real time, it must have seemed to them like Pharaoh was winning. As if God had maybe lied to them, you see. That must have been the thing they were wrestling with in their minds and hearts as they walked through this process as as God's people in real time. Did they know that God was sovereign? Well, yes, intellectually they knew it. God had told them that He was. He revealed Himself as the great I Am. He had said, I'm in control of Pharaoh's heart. So they knew it, but they would have to walk by faith then. And according to their natural perception of things, it seemed to them as if God was not in control at times. So then when God said to Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people of of, uh, Israel go, uh, these two things were revealed. One, God is sovereign over all things. Yes, even the hearts of men, and yes, even the hearts of great men like Pharaoh. God is the King of kings and Lord of lords. No one can thwart His purposes. And two, it will not always appear that way to us. When Moses, Aaron, and the Hebrews would look with their natural eyes, what they would see was hardness of heart, stubbornness, and obstinance. Indeed, they would endure even more suffering and oppression, and they would have to wrestle with how to interpret all of that in their own hearts. Perhaps you're beginning to see why all of this should matter greatly to us. Our situation is very similar to that of Moses, Aaron, and the Hebrews in this passage. We know that God is sovereign over all, and we know this by faith. And we know that God has accomplished our redemption through Christ. He has defeated Satan, sin, and death. He has set us free from their bondage. But as we sojourn in this world towards the promised land, things often do not appear this way. When we observe the world and the wickedness in it, and when we endure trials and tribulations of various kinds, we sometimes wonder, is God really in control? Has He really won the victory? Are we really His beloved New Covenant children? Is all of this true? These are the kinds of questions that God's people are bound to struggle with as they sojourn in this fallen world and towards the world to come. In fact, it's hard to imagine that any will escape wrestling with questions like these. If God is truly sovereign, and if He loves us, then why this suffering? Where is He now? And friends, I think this is a big part of what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. My physical eyes tell me one thing, but my eyes of faith tell me another. The sojourner must choose daily and even momentarily to walk by faith, that is, by what we know to be true from God's Word, and not by sight, that is, by what appears to be true from our observation of this fallen world. 
in chapter 5 of Exodus, we encounter the first of many tests for Moses, Aaron, and the Hebrews. This is a big test, isn't it? The question is, would they believe what they saw with their physical eyes, or would they believe what they heard from God? That is the question. Would they believe that the Lord is, I am, that He is in control and working for their good and for His glory? Or would they believe and act according to their natural perception of things? Stated once more, would Moses, Aaron, and the Hebrews trust in God and in His precious and very great promises? Or would they cower in fear when the heat was turned up and when everything around them seemed to indicate that God was either not for them, not faithful, or not strong enough to do what He said that He would do? And we do see that the heat was certainly turned up here in Exodus 5. To feel the heat, we must do our best to put ourselves in the place of Moses, Aaron, and the Hebrews. Uh, This is just a story to us, isn't it, brothers and sisters? But for them, it was real life. The pressures were very real. The fear was real. The sufferings were real. And the testing of their faith was real. Exodus 5.1-6.1 through can be divided into five scenes. In 5, 1 through 3, we see Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh. In verse 2 and in verses 4 through 19, we see Pharaoh's response to Moses, Aaron, and the Hebrews. In verses 20 and 21, the Hebrews respond to Moses and to Aaron. In verses 22 through 23, Moses responds to God. And in verse 1 of chapter 6, God begins to respond to Moses. I've already read the story to you. It's rather straightforward So please allow me now to make a few remarks about each of these five scenes. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, Moses and Aaron stand before Pharaoh, and they say what God had instructed them to say. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. That is verse 1. Verse 3, the God of the Hebrews has met with us, they say. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. I've not yet addressed this question in our study of Exodus. I've I've had the opportunity to do do so, but I haven't uh, taken the time. Why did God instruct Moses to request that Pharaoh allow the Israelites to go a three days journey into the wilderness? When in fact, God's intention was clearly to deliver His people once for all, never to return. And yet we find this phrase in the Exodus narrative from time to time. Tell Pharaoh you're going to go a three days journey into the wilderness, you know. And I think we hear those words and and we wonder, was this dishonest? Was God telling Moses to lie? We know that the intention was not a three day journey, but a journey out of Egypt never to to return. Commentators seem to agree that the phrase three-day journey was used in those days and in that culture to refer to a very substantial journey of indefinite length. And so, this was a polite way of saying, let us go for good. And we do see politeness throughout this passage as Moses and Aaron stand before Pharaoh. They're not harsh and aggressive and rude, but they speak to this powerful figure in a polite way. And so this was a polite way of saying, let us go for good. This was a polite way of addressing the king to begin 
negotiations. And the rest of the narrative makes it clear to everyone involved that God, Moses, the Hebrews, yes, even Pharaoh and the Egyptians knew exactly what this was. It was a request to leave the land and to never come back. Notice also this, the purpose for the three-day journey was to sacrifice to the Lord, that is, to worship. And obviously, Israel was leaving Egypt to do much more than just to make sacrifices to the Lord. But this does sum it all up nicely, doesn't it? Why was Israel to be redeemed and and delivered from Egyptian bondage except to serve the Lord, to worship Him in in all things and and always? Uh, That was the purpose for the redemption. Worship. They were to be freed from Egyptian bondage so that they might worship and serve the Lord. And Moses and Aaron added this little remark. It has not appeared before in the narrative. Let us go worship, lest He, that is God, fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. What is that all about? Well, as I see it, this statement harkens back to the episode regarding Gershom's uncircumcision and the threat of death that came upon him from the Lord. Moses, Aaron, and everyone involved learned something very important about the worship of God on that day. God's people, whom He has called out of the world to walk before Him in holiness, had better not take the worship of God, nor the ordinances of God, lightly. If God had commanded that the males of His children, of His people rather, be circumcised on the eighth day, then He must be obeyed. And if God has commanded that he be worshipped in a particular way, then he must be obeyed. Both Aaron and Moses learned something about the worship and service of Yahweh in that event regarding the uncircumcision of Gershom. And these words, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword, anticipate future events regarding the people's failure to worship God according to His commands. You know this to be true if you're at all familiar with the Exodus narrative and with the rest of the Pentateuch. Israel would constantly get itself in trouble as they they played fast and loose with the worship of God, as they did not obey God's voice concerning worship. This people was redeemed for the purpose of worship. And they were to take the worship of God very seriously. And here we see that Moses and Aaron get it. They get it. We must go and worship Him, lest the Lord come against us. So they had developed a proper fear of the Lord. And brothers and sisters, we must be careful too. For we have not only been called to worship the Lord, but we have been called to worship and serve Him as He has prescribed in His most holy word. We must pay careful attention to what He has said, and we must be careful to obey. Secondly, in verses 2 and 4 through 19, Pharaoh responds to Moses, Aaron, and the Hebrews. In verse 2 he says, Who is the Lord, that I should obey His voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover I will not let Israel go. And, And here, the hardness of Pharaoh's heart is put on display for the first time. It's just what God said would happen. Pharaoh's heart is hard. The words, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice and let Israel go, reveal Pharaoh's pride. He thought of himself as greater than Yahweh. Can you picture him now? Who, who is this Lord of yours that I, Pharaoh, should listen to Him? I, I picture him speaking with, with, uh, with great animation, you know. Uh, with, with great pride uh, in his heart. 
Who is this, this Lord of yours that I, great Pharaoh, should, should listen to him? The words, I do not know the Lord, can mean either that he had never heard of Yahweh before, or that he has heard of him, but has no regard for him. I, I do not know him, meaning I have no regard for him. Either way, Pharaoh's initial response was simply, no, I will not let Israel go. But that is not all that he said. Not only did he refuse to let Israel go, he punished the Hebrews severely by increasing their burden. Please try to put yourself in their shoes here. They were already languishing under hard labor and brutal oppression. They were crying out to the Lord. They were in a place of total desperation. But here we read in verse 4 that the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from the work? Get back to your burdens. And in verses 5 through 19, we learn that Pharaoh heaped even more work on top of the already overburdened Hebrews. The Hebrews were evidently tasked with making bricks for these cities of Pharaoh. Uh, apparently what the Pharaoh would do, what the Egyptians would do, was use another group to provide straw for the brick-making process. But now when Moses and Aaron requested Israel's release, Pharaoh demanded that the Hebrews gather their own straw for making the bricks. But their quota for bricks was not decreased. So imagine what this must have felt like. When you are already pushed beyond your limits, when you're barely hanging on to life as it is, and even more is heaped upon you, it just must have been absolutely disheartening. Their hearts sank. They were overwhelmed with, with fear and with misery at this word. The Hebrews were beaten when they failed to meet their quota Many probably died as the suffering went from bad to worse. We must recognize how terrible this situation was. Brothers and sisters, we, we must see that Pharaoh was a very cruel master. The Hebrews and others were brutally oppressed by him. And when they sought relief, what did he do? He piled even more on. And this should remind us that Satan, of whom Pharaoh was a type, is a very cruel master as well. Life in his kingdom is characterized by bondage. From the beginning he has presented himself as light and as life, but in reality his ways lead only to darkness and death. Those who follow after Him, and that is to say all who do not follow after God through faith in Christ, will find in due time that He is a very cruel taskmaster. He holds out the world to you at the beginning, doesn't He? He promises so many pleasures. He promises riches. He promises fame. But we find that, in fact, He, he takes from His people, but never does He give. His ways lead only to sorrow, and with the passing of time, His burdens grow heavier and heavier as He requires more and more of His subjects. You've seen this to be true in life. Those who follow the evil one in this world go from bad to worse. They go from misery to great misery as they there try to, to, to keep the law of God and find that they cannot. They try to find pleasure in Satan and in his kingdom and his ways and the darkness of this world, but, but they are just heavenly, heavily, heavily burdened throughout the passing of time. 
His burdens are heavy, but Christ's are light. This is why Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, excuse me, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, Christ says. Every man has a master. Did you know that? We love to think of ourselves as independent and autonomous creatures. But every man has a master. It is either Satan or it is Jesus. That might sound shocking to some, but it is true. We are either citizens in Satan's kingdom, or we are citizens in Christ's kingdom. There is no other option. There is no other alternative. Every man has a master, but Jesus is a kind master. He's a kind Lord, whereas Satan is most cruel. And so I am saying, if you wish to have life, hope, and peace, you must have Jesus as Lord. You must come to Him and take His burden upon you. And He promises that it will be light, and indeed it is. We must obey Jesus as Lord. We must honor Him as our Master. But when we do, we will find that there is so much joy. There is so much true pleasure. There is so much life found in Him and in His kingdom and in His service. The heavy hand of Pharaoh is certainly a picture of life in Satan's cruel and oppressive kingdom. His burdens are exceedingly heavy, and with the passing of time, he requires more and more of his subjects. Again, he takes, but never does he give. Pharaoh's response was effective, humanly speaking. The Hebrew people languished and groaned under the heavy labor. The Hebrew foreman appealed to Pharaoh on behalf of the people, but they were rebuked sharply and sent away. Verse 17, Pharaoh said, You are idle, you are idle. Do you hear the intensity here? It's repeated twice. Uh, This is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. This leads us now to the Hebrews' response to Moses and Aaron. It is found in verses 20 and 21, and it comes through the foreman. These were Hebrews who were serving as foremen, and so they speak on behalf of the people. Uh, They spoke to Pharaoh on behalf of the people, and now they speak to Moses and Aaron. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. I feel for Moses and Aaron, don't you? This must have weighed so heavily upon them. Not only did Pharaoh say, No, I will not let the people go, but he made the people suffer exceedingly, and Moses and Aaron must have felt the weight of that. This was all in response to what they had done. And now here they're waiting with anticipation for the foreman to come out from their meeting with with Pharaoh. Of course, they're hoping that they will be successful, that the the burdens will be lifted in some way. But instead, they are met with anger. They're met with hostility from from their own people. Uh, These foremen look them in the eye and say, The Lord judge between you and us. You have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh. You've put a sword in their hands to kill us. This was deadly serious stuff. 
This was not just about labor, it was even about life and death. And so Moses and Aaron must have felt a very great burden. The people suffered greatly physically under the harsh edicts of Pharaoh, but the burden that Moses and Aaron carried as leaders was spiritual and emotional. It must have felt like they were carrying the weight of the world. As Pharaoh used his political skill to turn everything back on them, the words of the foreman, again, who were themselves in a very difficult position, must have cut very deep. And the foreman did accurately represent the spirit of the people to Moses and Aaron. They were truly broken by this. In 6.9, we'll come to it next week, Lord willing, we read that Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. He, he sought to encourage them with the word of the Lord. But the people did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So Pharaoh was effective. He got the job done, politically speaking. He crushed the Hebrews. And Moses and Aaron, by this point in the narrative, find themselves all alone. They would have to stand before hard-hearted Pharaoh with the broken-hearted Israel behind them. But this was their calling, and God would make them stand, as we will see. In the fourth scene, Moses responds to God. This is found in verses 22 through 23, where we read, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why, why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. This is a very honest statement from a very broken and overwhelmed man who is struggling with very deep questions regarding God's purposes in the midst of great suffering. Notice the question is why. First, Moses asks, Why have you done evil to this people? I, I feel it, that it's a little uncomfortable even to, to read these words, for we know that God does not do evil. As James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. God is holy, and Moses knew that. And he also knew that it was Pharaoh and not God who did the evil. He even says so in verse 23, For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. So it is clear what Moses means when he says to God, Why have you done evil to this people? He is recognizing that God's plan resulted in suffering, and he is asking why it had to be this way. It's a very honest question, isn't it? If you were honest, I think you would admit that you've wondered the same. Next, Moses asks, Why did you ever send me? In other words, he is recognizing that the people were better off before he showed up. It would have been better for him never to come. Yes, they were in bondage. Yes, they were crying out to God in their anguish. It was really bad, but, but it's so much worse now. Why did you ever send me? Now that he has arrived, their sorrows have been multiplied. Clearly we see Moses struggling to keep the faith in this moment. He was wavering. And the reason he wavered was that he grew short-sighted. In this moment of great trial, 
He forgot about God's promises, his faithfulness in the past, and he also lost sight of the prize. I think it is significant that when Moses turned to the Lord, he did not refer to him as Yahweh, but Adonai. That's a little detail here. But he does not refer to him as Yahweh, which is the, the name which signifies God's sovereignty. It's the name which signifies that He is the covenant-making and covenant-keeping Lord who is faithful. He doesn't call Him Yahweh here. He calls Him Adonai, which is a more generic uh, term for, for Lord. Uh, but I think it's another indication that, that Moses was in this moment struggling to keep the faith. He was wavering and, and he was forgetting about God's past faithfulness, about the precious and very great promises delivered uh, to uh, his forefathers, about God's faithfulness to them for ages. He was losing sight of the promises concerning the, the reward of, of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. Why did you ever send me, Lord? They, they were better off before I came. And the trials and tribulations of life have a way of doing this to us, don't they? You've experienced the same thing the trials can sometimes be so severe that they are all we see. We become nearsighted. Moses was overwhelmed by the sight of the increased suffering of his kinsmen, and it was all he could think about. He forgot about the past, the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his faithfulness to preserve them through the trials of life, and he lost sight of the prize, that is, deliverance from Egyptian bondage, fellowship with God, the promised land. So nearsighted was Moses that he could only ask why. Why have you done this? Why have you sent me? And we've all been there, to one degree or another. We've been swallowed up by the trials and tribulations of life and the clouds of despair which so often accompany them. And what do we need in a moment like that? We need perspective. We need perspective. Here's the one thing that Moses had going for him, and it's a very big deal. Where did Moses go in his sorrow? Where did he go in his struggle? The text says quite clearly, Moses turned to the Lord. He brought his burdens, his, his despair, his confusion. He brought all of that to the Lord. He turned to the Lord. And this is what those who have true faith will do. When they suffer and when they doubt, they will run to the Lord and not away from Him. The last scene that I wish to mention this morning is actually found in, in 6, 1 through 8. Here is the Lord's response to Moses. It's a marvelous response. We're going to leave the bulk of it for next Sunday. But it is the Lord's response which brings this entire passage to a proper conclusion. And so I must mention it today, even if only in passing. Let us read verse 1 only. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land." In the remainder of the passage, we will find a beautiful reminder of everything that had been promised up to this point, a reminder of God's covenant faithfulness. It will be a, 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 God will re-up in a way with Moses and say, I'm still here and I'm still committed to do, doing all of this. I, I will keep you. And so Moses is encouraged by these, by these words. We see here that God was patient with Moses. 
tender and kind, compassionate, as Moses turned to him in his grief and in his despair. We see that the Lord was faithful to lift him up out of it. As we move now to a conclusion, please allow me just to make a few suggestions for application. They'll be brief. One, I want you to see that Christ has done for us what the Lord did for Moses and the Hebrews. He has warned us concerning the difficulty we will face in this world, saying, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So God warned Moses that Pharaoh's heart would be hard, and Christ has warned us that life in this world will be filled with hardship. Yes, even His people would experience tribulation, but they are to take heart knowing that Christ has overcome the world. This is, this is very helpful, for it enables us to develop proper expectations. If our expectations are amiss, if we assume that life in Christ will be easy sailing, blissful and serene, then we will find it very difficult to process the difficult realities of life in this fallen world when they come our way. And for this reason, Christ told His disciples, You're going to have tribulation in this world, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Two, being forewarned regarding the trials and tribulations of life does not remove the struggle. It's one thing to say in your mind and with your mouth, I know that the Christian life will involve trials and tribulations, and I know that God is sovereign over all of it. He's working all things together for good. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing altogether to walk through the trials and tribulations of life by faith when they come. To do this, we must turn to the Lord in our suffering. We must bring our questions and our heartaches to Him, and we must receive His Word anew and afresh so that we might maintain perspective. In His Word, we are reminded of His promises, His past faithfulness, and of our future reward, which is surely ours in Christ Jesus. Can you see how this application is drawn from this text? Yes, God warned Moses, but even when it happened, Moses was still put back on his heels, wasn't he? Even when Pharaoh's heart was hard, just as the Lord had said, it was more than Moses expected. He was taken back. But God was faithful to remind him of all of his promises and to sustain him in the midst of the difficulty. We must run to the Lord, brothers and sisters, with our questions, with our despair, with our heartache. We must run to him and not away from him so that we might be sustained by him. Three, I wish to draw a little application out of that story regarding the uncircumcision of Gershom. You're thinking to yourself, why do you keep going back to that strange little story? I think it's an important one. Moses started his journey towards Egypt to serve as the Redeemer of God's people, but he had neglected the sign of the Old Covenant. He had neglected it. He had failed to apply it to his own son. And God was determined to send him to the Hebrews with a proper appreciation for the sign of the covenant that he served. For the sign would reassure them that they were God's people. It was a physical reminder of God's promises. It was also a physical reminder of their obligations before God. It functioned as a visible word to them. As I've said before, circumcision is nothing to us, for we are not under the old covenant, but the new. 
And the signs that God has given to us under this new covenant, this better covenant, are baptism and the Lord's Supper. They are not for our children by virtue of their birth. No, they are for those who believe in Christ. For the promise is for us and for our children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. That is what Acts 2.39 says. These signs, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are for those who believe, and these signs must not be neglected. For they remind us continuously of God's promises, of who we are in Christ, of what He has done for us, that He is with us now, and they remind us also of our future hope. The sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper preach to us through their symbolism, and they nourish us in the soul as we partake of them by faith. And what do Christian sojourners need? Especially those who are heavily burdened by the trials and tribulations of life. What do they need? They need the gospel. They need to be reminded that through faith in the Messiah, their sins have been washed away. They are united to Christ. He is theirs and they are His. And He has not left us as orphans, but has sent the Helper, the promised Holy Spirit. Through faith in Christ, we have been reconciled to the Father. And we have this sure hope and expectation that is life eternal in the new heavens and earth, where sin, suffering, and death are no more, and all is filled with the glory and splendor of God. This gospel is proclaimed in word, but it is also signified in sacrament. And so I am saying to you, brothers and sisters, as a point of application, let us not neglect the sacrament, but let us come to the table each Lord's Day, being reminded of the work that Christ has done for us, our privileged place in Him, His presence with us now to sustain us and to sanctify us, and of our future hope. We need to assemble together. And we need to come before the Lord's table as we sojourn in this sin-sick world that is so filled with darkness, so filled with suffering. We need to hear the gospel proclaimed, but we also need to properly appreciate the visible sign that Christ has given to us. His body broken, His blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, and of our future hope, we long to participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb and to enjoy His presence for all eternity. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, do help us as we sojourn in this world where we must walk by faith and not by sight. As we observe the world, as we consider the difficulties that we encounter. Father, we can be discouraged. You know this to be true of us, just as Moses was discouraged. But help us, O God, to believe Your Word and to walk by faith instead. Give us strong faith, O God. Give us the, the ability to cling tightly to what You have said to Your promises. Help us to know for certain that you are with us now to sustain us and that you will bring us safely home. Father, I pray for your church each Lord's Day as, as she hears the Word of God proclaimed and as she sees uh, the gospel signified before her in the 
bread and in the cup, I pray that her faith would grow strong. Lord, help us so that we might honor you in this world until Christ returns or until you take us home. In his name we pray. Amen.